Welcome to ASAR Training and Response Podcast. This is episode number three, where Carla and Eric talk to Heidi Murphy about what it's like to be deployed as a first-time ASAR responder. Welcome back, everybody, to the ASAR Training and Response Podcast. With me today is Miss Carla Lewis. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. I'm really excited about today's podcast. And also with us is Heidi Murphy, one of the Code 3 responders and also working with us at ASAR Training Response located north of Boston. Good morning, Heidi. How are you doing? Good morning, Eric. Good morning, Carla. Thank you so much for having me. Heidi, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's going on in your world these days? I am a photographer by trade and um, I work all over greater New England and I service the wedding industry and the food industry. And I'm involved with Rescue on a volunteer basis. And I'm currently working on a new project with a graphic designer where we are putting together a presentation called Creative Advocacy for the Underdog. And it's giving the uh, creative community a platform to meet and meet with rescues and help change the face of rescue and the trajectory of any particular dog through stronger branding and uh, photography. Gosh, that's so important. You know, we see so many rescue groups and so many people across the country trying to do the right thing, but it's almost competitive at some point in time for animals to be at that at that forefront. And we have learned, especially through our business, that the marketing piece and getting the the, the voice out there for these animals in the proper structure makes all the difference in the world to give them another chance. So as you talk about, you know, a, a simple scene or or the way the picture's taken um, could change the perception of people looking at that animal. So this is a, a pretty interesting project. Uh, is there a website or, or places that people can follow you on? Not yet. So we're in the early stages of that. We're just completing our presentation, which is being um, presented in two weeks in New Hampshire, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And I believe that the designer has secured a, a URL so that immediately after that presentation, we can start developing the website and the, and the platform to bring those rescues and the creative community together. So Heidi, uh, we met a couple years ago at one of the um, ASAR trainings. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in disaster response? Sure. So my introduction to animal disaster response and the existing overpopulation problem in the South was in response to Hurricane Katrina. In the many hours that I watched that storm unfold on the news and the, all the coverage after and, and how it devastated itself and the impact on the animals, I had watched probably one too many videos of uh, people being airlifted off of their roofs and, and leaving their dog behind. So though not at all advocated that I'm now on the other side of this, I did self-deploy to um, in response to Hurricane Katrina and I spent the better part of six months doing animal rescue and relief work between uh, Louisiana, uh, including New Orleans, and then up to Tylertown, Mississippi. Heidi, tell us a little bit about, you, you started off, and, and it's great that, that um, you know, you start the path that most people start, is that they see a disaster, they feel heart-compelled to go help in that disaster, and so they deploy not exactly knowing how the system may be able to 
use their current resources and to steer them towards proper training or how to get them credentialed. Can you tell us a little bit about your path to self-deployment to where you are as a Code 3 responder now? Absolutely. Following Katrina, I took many years off from rescue and in response to Hurricane Harvey, where again, I was witnessing all the scenes of flooding and people wading through water and carrying their animals or reports of animals being chained and left in yards during neighborhood flooding, I uh, decided that this would be the last storm that I set out. And I started to do the research on how I could go about becoming part of uh, disaster response and deploying in an official manner. And that's where through, that's when I connected with you. And it was actually um, during Harvey that I sat at home and I started going through the required FEMA certifications of the classwork that's all available online. Following that, I waited for your group to post availability of technical training. And shortly after, I found myself in Kansas doing my first training, which was Swiftwater. Yeah, I, I remember that now. Um, and Swiftwater class is always an exciting class, especially for first-time responders to come out and experience some of that force in the water. And it's it's interesting for those that are trying to get started in the business. Uh, and in fact, we, we just dealt with this in our Tampa class, is it, it seems to be difficult sometimes for people, number one, to realize that there is an animal search and rescue credential out there and they're not quite sure how to get started. And one of the best places you can start is with Code 3 Associates. If you go to Code3Associates.org, Code 3 offers awareness and operations training of all different types uh, and can get people started. There, If you go to the volunteer page, which may or may not be under construction right now, uh, it'll talk about the different online FEMA independent study classes that people need, 100, 200, 700, 800 of the basics across the country for animal emergency responders to take. Once those online classes are complete, then you can start working in those field-specific classes, starting at the awareness level and working yourself up to a technician or specialist level. When you get to that higher level, that technician and specialist level, that's when you can come over to ASAR Training and Response, and we offer those classes along with 20-plus years of field experience between all of our instructors that give you practical application. And so there is a little bit better situational awareness given in those classes of what to expect when you're out in the field. But it really, you know, everything that we tell people are stories and everything that, that we tell people is our experience. So it's really different as you hit the ground the first time. And that jumps us forward into Hurricane Florence. And this was Heidi's first deployment under Code 3. And it turned out to be kind of a whirlwind ride just to get there. So, Heidi, one of the things that, that really is interesting about your story that I was fascinated with was hearing you talk about, as a first responder, what that preparation at home looked like, and how did you go through not only the, the physical packing, what to take, but your mental preparedness to, to head out for 10 days? Sure. Well, you folks are awesome, and through lists that you provided and then through some personal conversations of really what I needed to be to be prepared, that was the biggest hurdle. So I wasn't even at the point where I was thinking about what is it going to be like to be in the water. It was more like, what do I need to survive in that environment for 10 days? Things that maybe aren't on a list that I think that I, that I might need to have or might want to have. And so I think just 
prepping for packing and uh, making sure I had everything so that I, I had what I needed under my dry food. I had what I needed for, for sleeping, right? So that was the other thing, too, is I figured I'd be exhausted. And what do I need at night to decompress to make sure that I can sleep, get up in the morning and, and start again? So uh, very heavy bags that got traipsed through, I think, two, two airports, one layover onto a truck and then onto your big rig BART. And uh, there we were, like a 12-hour drive later after another overnight in North Carolina. Right. And you guys are going to laugh at this. I'm going to age myself real quick. Anybody familiar with the movie Spaceballs? And if you've seen it <laughs> and the princess, you know, they've crashed on the, on the planet and only take what you need. And the princess has these giant pieces of luggage. And one of them is just full of a hairdryer. Every time I talk to new responders, I think about these, these giant bags that they come and live out of. Um, and we try to tell people just bring the necessities of what you need. But every time I think about people showing up with giant suitcases, it's a space balls moment. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually thought that my bag was, I was very concerned about space. And so I think in hindsight, I probably could have been a little bit bigger with my bag. <laughs> and I, I found like I shoved everything into the point where I thought I'm lucky if I don't bust a zipper before I get to where I'm going. Like my, like my fear was it somehow in the luggage hold that like my bag would burst open and then like everything would be spread all over the bottom of the plane but everything landed intact but I, I think that you need to it's sort of like a compromise like making sure you have a, a bag large enough to fit everything that you need but also a bag that you can work out of because I think that if you have a bag sitting in the back of the truck and you got to be able to open it and you need to have working space right so I was I felt disorganized because once I opened the bag it was like a poof of stuff. So I think moving forward, I saw your bag, but your bag is much bigger, Eric, because you probably had a suit in it. But um, yeah, pack conservatively, but um, leave yourself enough room. Well, and what we don't tell people is you need stuff for 90 degree weather and then sleeping in about 40 degrees. <laughs> For those that aren't familiar with BART, BART is the big animal rescue truck. It's an 80-foot-long semi-truck that can sleep up to 10 of us in different areas. And it's also nicknamed the Polar Express because <laughs> we sleep cold. So we tell people um, to, to bring their their sweatpants and their hoodies. And so you'll work outside in 95-degree weather and sweat all day long and then shower up and everybody jumps in their sweatpants and puts their hoodies up and uh, <laughs> snuggles in for the night. So, What were some of the first thoughts that you had when you arrived to the uh, staging site? Uh, the staging site was interesting because we were, we were in Pender County and we were in the parking lot of a, of a school system and the temporary shelter was in one of their outbuildings and it was immediate entry into the aftermath of a disaster. So you have other people set up in the parking lot that are part of the community. You have a nonstop sound of barking from within. You have vehicles coming in with animals. You have a team of amazing community people that are working almost around the clock but have their own you know, personal property losses that they're dealing with as well. Uh, so I think that you have to come with the mindset that you just have to sort of absorb what's happening and not even have a moment to process it and just keep moving forward and really be ready to 
hop right in with the team, get stuff off the truck and be in the water. So we were in the water that afternoon. So, so we rolled in, I don't know, a little bit after noontime and staged and in dry suits and off we went. So describe to uh, our listeners here what it's like to be in a dry suit when it's about 95 degrees and 90% humidity. It's really probably one of the most uncomfortable things that I've ever done. Uh, so I think to be prepared for that, it's, it has uh, rubber neck gaskets, wrist gaskets. It has built-in booties. On top of that, you have a, a PFD and you're in a helmet. And sometimes you're sitting in the sun and it is indeed humid and 95 degrees. So it, incredibly uncomfortable, uh, profuse sweating underneath. Hydration is super important. I think sometimes it was actually, I don't know if it's a gift or not, but I think sometimes the suit itself was so uncomfortable that it almost curbed the emotional response to what you were seeing because being so physically uncomfortable was a distraction. It's like working out to really, really loud music. Like sometimes you can't feel the pain because you're just being flooded through one of your other senses. Mm. You know, one of the one of the things I think though when I've when I've been on some disaster sites is I I know about two seconds into getting my dry suit on why I'm wearing it. Um, could you just kind of describe what the water's like in a situation like that? Yeah, the water's pretty awful. So there's a smell that when you are are even in your staging area, the whole community sort of has an odor, even if you're not right next to the the flooded area. So obviously we're, we're staging in an area that's on higher ground. And then we drive multiple vehicles, convoy with boats. And then we get to water's edge, which is typically like driving down a road. And then the road just ends because it goes right into water. And that's where you you get your boats in the water and that's where you set off from. So of course, as soon as you're closer to the water, the smell becomes more intense and it's, it's really hard to explain. It's very much a mixed smell of especially depending on where you are, maybe some agricultural waste, um, sewage, chemicals. Sometimes you'd be in an area where you smelled gas. I think that was, that was something that was common. And then certainly once you're in and around a home, there's like a different smell from stagnating water and maybe the start of, of like a mold, mildewy smell inside the home. Yeah, it it's, takes about, you know, a very short amount of time to be really thankful for that dry suit, even uh, even as uncomfortable as they are. And we always stress responder safety, and part of that safety is having the proper um, PPE for the responses that we're going to. And Carla makes a really good point. Even in our training, we recommend people wear their wear a dry suit or rent a dry suit from us um, to have the real life responder experience when they do their field skills even when we're in warm water and warm weather um, we encourage people wear the dry suit because you're going to be wearing a dry suit in real response and trying to swim or trying to do activities or trying to move between boats is very different in a dry suit than just in a pfd and helmet and it we see people always ask, can I wear a wetsuit? And the biggest difference between a dry suit and a wetsuit is the wetsuit allows water in, traps it against your body to warm it. But when that water floods in underneath the wetsuit, it brings all those hazardous chemicals and all those biological issues in and traps it to your skin for a long time. And the question comes, well, we see first responders wear that all the time. Correct, you will see that in some of the swift water teams because those are rapid entry teams and they're meant for very 
short trip into the water. So they're going to jump into their wetsuits, do their rescue, and then they're going to be out of the wetsuits and into decon within an hour or two. ASAR teams are not going to be, we're long-term mission-driven teams that are going to be out for eight to 12 hours a day. So think about sitting in that wetsuit, uh, not to mention the neoprene chafing on you in hot weather, but holding all that toxic element, you know, against your skin versus a dry suit that seals that water out. And yes, you're going to sweat. We call it the ASAR weight loss program. When you come out for the flood response <laughs> with us, because you're going to drop water weight like crazy sweating in those dry suits, but at least you're sealed away from the hazardous materials. Um, so Heidi, what, um, how did you feel when you were there about your training and, you know, did all of that come back? Did you feel like there was a real value in the ASAR training um, when it came to your response? Uh, no, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, at this point in retrospect, like I, I don't know how you would deploy and, and respond within a disaster without training water, flood water, moving water, or, or slack water is often, I think, a, a scary place to be. And having gone through training and understanding what it feels like to be in a suit, what hazards could exist, just keep you safer in the field. And then there are other, other things that I think are super important to keep up on when you're, when you're not deployed. I, I'm unique in that I don't work in the animal field. So I'm not working deal. I'm not an animal control officer. I don't have other opportunities to work with animals outside of my own. So things like knots, super important to practice on a regular basis, because once you're in the field, I think we were, it was our first day in the water that we, we had a goat rescue, right? So the, the water on this property was so high that it was up to the second level of a barn where there were, I think two, two goats, maybe three goats, I think maybe two actually, and um, corralling those goats and and needing to assist in that and then respond by creating knots is all those things that are important along the way. So you're putting all the things that you learned in training to use in the field. You had a good time with those goats. You <laughs> learned a whole new safety protocol for goats. After we Yeah, that was got, crazy. After we got a hold of the goats <laughs> and the goats were on the second story of a barn. We floated up to the second story of the barn, but we we were able to loop the goats and then we had to hog tie the, the goats using a handcuff knot and then we handed the goats down into the boat well when we hand these goats have horns on them and even though everybody's wearing helmets one of the goats turned its head just right it wasn't being aggressive it was an absolute accident but caught brett along the side of the head and brett's in a full coverage helmet and it still caught his temple and bloodied his head so now we put pool noodles <laughs> on the goat horns before we pick them up um, for added protection for our responders. And um, yeah, so there are pictures we'll end up posting uh, because Heidi and Brett had to hold the goats. We were three miles in and we had to actually push across some, some shallow areas with the boats. So they were holding goats for about 45 minutes as we extricated out. And actually, the goats were falling asleep in their lap. And I'm not quite sure Heidi wasn't falling asleep with her goat, too, because she was a genius. <laughs> uh, you know, that actually kind of brings up an interesting thought, Heidi. How does, like, day one compare to um, day, you know, seven? You know, what is the day, What is the kind of toll take day after day doing this type of work? Well, in the beginning, when I was 
told how long I should expect the deployment to be. So between maybe 10 days and two weeks. And I thought, oh, I can do two weeks in the water. Like, I don't understand why they cut it off at about the two week mark if they were to need to bring in another wave of people. But I think I was in the water nine consecutive days. And uh, by the by the ninth day, I could I could understand why, because it's a, an incredible amount of, it isn't just an emotional fatigue, it's a physical fatigue, not just from lack of sleep, but also from just being in that environment. So it's so incredibly hot, trying to stay hydrated. You know it's hot when, when you have the opportunity to get into chest high, toxic, smelly water, and that actually feels good because it cools your body <laughs> right through the, through the dry suit. Right. So you know, when I hit that ninth day and I, and I did have a, I didn't get into the water on my last day because I had an, an issue with um, uh, a turkey mite that we think that I picked up along the way. Um, and so it's pretty uncomfortable and pretty itchy. So I didn't get in the water on that last day, but it, at that point I was ready to not be in the water. And I understood why deployments are limited and why after a certain point you bring in a fresh team of people. Mm, absolutely. And it's not that it isn't incredibly emotionally satisfying. Like there was emotional satisfaction. There were all sorts of highs and lows from being incredibly saddened and emotionally hurting from maybe what you had witnessed that day, but also knowing that you were part of, of saving an animal and being part of a possible reunification with that family. So there was that component that, you know, would be amazing, but just physically it's challenging. And it, it's hard to convey to responders what to expect when we hit the field. And, you know, let me set our, our daily routine here is most times, and my personal preference as director for the team is I'm always the first to get up and I'm always the last to go to bed. And so I'll get up ahead of the team about 5.30 and start to get the day put together. And I'll get over to the emergency operations center grab our mission statements while that's going on. The team leads and the team responders are getting themselves up, fed, ready to go, packing gear, packing boats, and are basically mission ready when I come back about 8.30, 9 o'clock. We get in our vehicles, we head out to the field, so we don't, you know, actually dress out and hit the field till maybe 9.30, 10. And then we work from the rest of the daylight till almost dusk to fill those missions and complete those missions and get those animals transported back. And by the time we pull out then, a lot of times in Hurricane Florence, we were pulling out right at dark and which is really unnerving because everything complicates, even with headlamps in, in the dark. But by the time we got back to base camp, it's now 6.30, 7 o'clock. Everybody still has to decon their gear, decon themselves. So we're eating at 8.30, 9 o'clock. Everybody starts to sit down and decompress. We try to have a little after-action report uh, from each of the teams because we're not together as one big team a lot of times. We're often split up into different groups to handle different mission areas. And then by the time you actually start to work out and go to bed, it's 10.30, 11 o'clock. And many times there's lots of conversations about the day because of some of the tough scenarios that the responders see and have to leave behind. And by the time those conversations are had, and they need to be had because if responders don't talk about it right then, some of them won't sleep. And you just can't go without a lot of sleep uh, for consecutive days. 
And by the time I do paperwork, it's midnight, 1230, and then we repeat that process. So even though we have a lot of responders say I'm in for the count, even the management team, we try to rotate out every two weeks on really long uh, deployments um, just for the mental health aspect. And there were so many stories in Hurricane Florence and you guys, uh, listeners, stay with us as we do ASAR Stories from the Field uh, episodes coming up where we're going to go back and look at the stories where, you know, you come across a property and there are lots of animals there and some of them are in marginal to poor condition, but they're not in immediate life threat situations is what do we do with that and also working with some real extreme situations and I'll, I'll bring up the porch ponies but we'll talk about it in detail in the stories where you have horses that are trapped eight miles in a flood zone and this flood zone is 17 miles wide these horses are trapped in the middle of it and what are the options for saving those horses and how does that play out and that actually turned out to be one of the focal points of Hurricane Florence for us um, so it, it really is, uh, as Heidi, you mentioned a lot to absorb and you don't actually process it until you actually sit down and have some quiet time and it all comes flooding back. And it really, uh, we see our responders email and call a week after deployment is over two weeks after deployment over, because I tell them all the time, you're going to have nightmares you're going to have bad dreams uh, i personally uh, when i come home you practically have to lock me in my bedroom because i sleepwalk and i look for the team <laughs> i've done it for ever since i've been a director after deployment i still feel like i have to take care of people and i walk <laughs> i literally not to get too creepy but <laughs> i literally will search my house every night in my dead sleep and my wife knows to put me back to bed, not wake me up. And most times I make it back to bed, but I've, I've had, I've woken up where I feel like the room is flooding and, and I'm trapped and it's just, you know, people re-experience those things. So Heidi, I know you had some physical challenges with the turkey mites. Um, talk to us about some of the unexpected things um, in the dry suit. We have relief zippers but we never practice that in training. How do you deal with, with <laughs> yeah. personal issues in a dry suit? <laughs> yeah. not, I don't know. Part, not part of the training <laughs> curriculum. <laughs> Come on, ASAR potty training. This is a new <laughs> thing, Carla, we can do this. I know we can. Yeah, that was a learn-as-you-go experience. So as you mentioned, we, we had a, a rescue involving two horses called the Porch Ponies. And you know, it, when, you're in a, when you're in a dry suit and you are drinking immense amounts of water so that you stay healthy, it, it makes sense that you are sweating a lot of that, but you do need to urinate. So my mistake is that I did not let anybody know that I really needed to relieve myself when we started that rescue. And that was probably maybe a couple hours long. So by the time we were done and we got those horses to safety, physically like my bladder, I was in pain. So I had to say to you in mixed company on the boat, because I think that there were maybe five of us, what do I do? Because there's not, aside from the porch that we had ponies on, there was not any dry anything in, in sight. So, and I think your response was, well, just unzip the back of your, your suit and just pee off the side of the boat. <laughs> so, and that's just what had to happen. And there was that moment of like really awkward silence where then 
it was really quiet. It's very eerie. There's no noises aside from what's happening where you are because everything is flooded and there's no residents typically. And then having that moment of silence where like I actually couldn't urinate at that point where, you know, sort of talk amongst yourselves. And then once I was able to relieve myself, it was like five minutes of peeing, which was then <laughs> another awkward moment. But that's just part of it. Like you have to get comfortable with those things because it's just not healthy. It was a lesson learned. So I won't go through that again. But lesson learned that, you know, bodily functions are should be open for discussion so that so that everybody stays healthy. Right. And and we do run a co-ed team. In fact, probably 70% of our team are ladies. And some of the toughest ladies I know, they will, uh, you know, get into situations and handle them with the best. And I, I'd put them up against any of the best rescue teams, um, handling some of these animals in the water or in any situation. But we so we do try to accommodate and focus on our, our lady responders and try to present conveniences if we can but sometimes you're out in the woods and we're way in, in a zero resource environment and we've been out there for 12 hours and even our resources are running a little low and one of the things uh, Heidi mentioned was the turkey mites Heidi came out of the water one day and after she had showered is is that she had all these bite marks and Heidi talked to us a little bit about how that actually extended long past your deployment time Sure. So like I mentioned before, that really, that kept me out of the water on my last day because I was, I don't know, sort of looked like chicken pox or looked like mosquito bites, but they started at the, at my feet and my ankles. And then each day would get progressively worse to the point where they were all the way up my thighs. So instead of going into the water that day, I went and I sought some medical help uh, through the tent downtown and I had a medic work with me who's also a youth art responder and is used to being in dry suits and he took a, a look at what he was seeing and thought that it was probably turkey mites which the, the a true host would be a turkey so it can't learn live long term on my body but it can for its first life cycle and what it does is it enters the skin and then it just travels and then everywhere it travels you sort of have a little welt that comes up so once once I was home I had welts that went all the way up my thighs, my buttocks into my lower back. And it didn't go away for, I think my last welt disappeared a month after I was home. Wow. That's yeah. And, and we occasionally see that it's usually, you know, we've seen everything from latex allergies for the dry suits to of course poison ivy. If somebody gets out in the woods and unzips their suit, but we hadn't ever seen um, a, a turkey mite reaction like that. So uh, we definitely want to keep the health of our responders and it's something to think about when you're out in the field, all the different things you're exposed to. So Heidi, out of all the great rescues that we're going to talk about in ASAR stories from the field, is there a story that stuck with you or sticks with you to this day about Hurricane Florence and that deployment? Yes, there is. So, I mean, all of them do to a certain extent because there's a facet of one of them. What's it? So when I, think back on them there isn't one that i've forgotten but the one that bothered me the most um was actually not a i would say for for a canine rescue it was it was the house where there were pit bulls many pit bulls like literally swimming in water and we had one dog dead dog come out and that was really sad and, and very horrific and that stayed with me and that was the you know when you're in the field there it's not your job to emotionally react at that point your job is to help but that was one night that I came home and after 
everything was deconned and I was showered that I took a walk around the corner and made a phone call because that was an emotional night for me. But that, that aside, the, um, the one of the rescues that bothered me the most was actually on the human side. We were in an area that was off of Cape Fear that was really flooded. And I don't know if you recall, but when we came off of, of Cape Fear and entered those neighborhoods, we were in boats and the electric lines were three feet over our head. So there was an immense amount of water. But as we moved through the neighborhoods, there were two homes on the outskirts of this neighborhood that were just barely managing to stay above water. And there was a gentleman there with this dog who was staying. He was he still had a little bit of grass left and his house wasn't wet yet. And he was fantastic because he helped us identify some animals in need in the neighborhood that we were able to to bring in and they were rescued. But the following day, we came in and he was standing there on the edge of his property. You could see that the water had increased over the night. So the, the, the flood line was approaching his house. He probably only had a few feet of grass left. And he was standing on the water line with his dog on a leash, a large bag of dog food in a, in a single duffel bag. And what he thought, he heard the engines of the boat and he thought we were the USAR team. So he had finally decided that it was time for him to leave. And it was just incredibly sad to see somebody that was so defeated that somebody the day before was, you know, determined to stay in his home. And then the next day say, uh, there's just nothing left for me here. So as much as we go in and we rescue animals, there's a huge humanitarian aspect here. And so I think to be a responder and to say, I'm an animal person, I'm all about the animals, you have to be a people person too. And it's important to leave your judgment at home because there's so many instances that you'll run into where you don't know a whole story. And then after you hear the whole story about all the challenges these people in these communities endure, and it's just a very touching and troubling piece of it. And I often think of him, I have one photo I took of him. We stayed with him until the USAR team came because of course we wanted to make sure that the USAR team could take his animal with him. So if not, we were going to transport his dog and, and follow those boats out. But ultimately they did. And I did take a photo with him. I did. He allowed me to take a photo of his face. And then in hindsight, I never shared it. I, I shared a photo of him sitting in the USAR boat with his dog and that didn't show his face because I really wanted to respect his story and his privacy. But, but I'll never forget him. Yeah, so, such a great point. You know, we talk about the people and animal bond and what our focus is. And, and we often uh, don't get a chance to get to know the people that we help. And so experiencing people like that uh, and then watching them bounce back when it's all over. You know, I, I got to give a big shout out to the Pender County Animal Services crew with Jewel Horton and Bree Spear uh, because they dealt with these people uh, every day where their animals were left behind or they weren't reunited yet, or perhaps those animals disappeared and there was no closure there. And these animal services workers um, were there for the long haul because their houses were affected. They were sleeping at the shelter at night to care for these other people's animals and, and having a huge sacrifice of their own. So it, it affects people at so many different levels and it's really important to prepare our responders for that. 
and acknowledge that yes, we focus on the animal rescue team, but our goal is reunification with those animals. So these people have something to hang on to, to rebuild. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think that's why one of our, our mottos is keeping the entire family together. And I know so many people see these stories and, and, you know, their first response is I never leave my animal behind. I can't believe these people do that. And that's why, you know, when you said Heidi, that we just have to leave our judgment behind because we don't know the whole story and it's not our job to, to judge. Our job is to, you know, get those animals to safety and hopefully, you know, reunite them. And we work with um, the departments and the justice system in those areas and we let them handle, you know, any of the legal aspect of things. Our job is, is to do, you know, what we're sent out there to do and just, and help those animals. So Heidi, um, do you have any final advice for new responders, for people who think this is something they would want to do? Uh, what would you tell them? I would say to be prepared for it to be a process. So maybe, you know, after watching coverage of the storm season, it's again incited something in somebody that makes them want to be part of that. And, and as we talked about earlier, it is a process. So the things you have to go through online with FEMA, and then you have to have training in the field, and then you have to find a group that you're able to, to deploy with. So I think, uh, you know, just don't let it be a fleeting thing, like decide to do it and, and find those resources and, and move forward and know that it may take a year till you're in the water as it was in my case, but it's being part of something like that is truly amazing. The other, the other piece of advice that was given to me from a CrossFit coach a few years ago before one of the larger workouts when he was giving the, the members some instruction and he said in this workout, get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I have used that quote, you know, in my mind, uh, and it has gotten me through so many different hardships since, including rescue. So I think that don't get caught up in, in the, the glory of rescuing is really make a commitment to the cause, wanting to be part of a solution and be comfortable with the thought of being uncomfortable. That is such a, a great motto to have and probably beats my usual suck it up buttercup speech <laughs> that I give <laughs> to most of the responders because we're all in it together. Those are my go-tos. Suck it up, buttercup. We're all in it together. Let's go. But yours <laughs> is much better. Be, yeah, learn to, to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's probably a, a little bit more insightful and useful. Well, Heidi, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, you've brought a lot of perspective to being a first responder and how it is to get prepared for that, uh, along with sharing some of your stories. And we look forward to having you back on future episodes as we kind of go back through some of these detailed rescues and really take a look at the challenges that we had as a team, not only with the animals, but some of the reunification efforts. Miss Carla, any parting thoughts for the day? No, thank you, Heidi. It was great talking to you and look forward to talking to you again for sure. No, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast and check us out on Facebook and Instagram.